about uh, something as we continue on in this series that really is important to me, and I think it is to you too. Um, so last weekend I was down in Northern California. Uh, some of you know, have a friend down there, a pastor who uh, this last uh, spring was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. He's been going through chemotherapy, uh, went through uh, some pretty radical surgery about uh, nine days ago. I took out part of his colon, um, took out a third of his liver, and um, we're, we're still waiting to see uh, the results and, and how all that goes, but um, he's, he's home now. So a small team of us are kind of filling in and, and preaching for him when he's not able to do that. And it's just, there's something about, you're going down there and um, it's the kind of conversations you have in situations like this, right? Maybe you've, you've been there. I'm talking a lot about life and you know, how short it is and, and what's really important in the end and all the things that can uh, take our time and our energy and our emotion. But really when it gets right down to it, there's just really a few things that matter. In fact, really it's just kind of one category and that is it's, it's relationships. Oh, again, uh, relationship with God and relationship with people. And sometimes with your computer, but that just, uh, that just depends. How are you doing there, Scott? <laughs> oh, a reoccurring theme around here. And we're on. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Uh, but I talk a lot about how short life is and um, the things in life that are really important, things like the gospel, um, when it gets right down to it, uh, Jesus and uh, what a difference it makes to know him and to uh, be loved by him, um, thinking about what it is to be uh, saved by faith in him, talks uh, in the evening with Joel and Joy and I about the mission that God's given us. And, and in particular, um, it feels like we spent a lot of time uh, the last few visits talking about, again, just about relationships, about, about people. Because Jesus talked about relationships a lot. I don't know if you've noticed that when you read the New Testament, but like a lot of the time. And in this series, this is called uh, Better, and we're looking at some of the, the better passages of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament, and we've talked about, you know, better is wisdom, and better is God's word, and better is uh, taking advice, and better is trust. And this week, we're going to continue on, and actually, it's just great timing because this is uh, Thanksgiving week. And it's a great time for us to be looking at the verse that we're going to look at today. And so I've been thinking about Thanksgiving. We're getting ready in our house uh, to host Thanksgiving this week. And, you know, my, for my wife and I, we have a limited amount of time um, to put into Thanksgiving. And so we were talking recently about, like, what makes the very best Thanksgiving? Uh, if you have a bunch of people at your house and around the table, like, what is it? What is it that makes a, a Thanksgiving memorable? Is it the food? Right? Of course, the food doesn't hurt, Right. But is it really, in the end, is it the food that people remember? Um, is it the decorations? Or is it like, so in our household, there's kind of this big thing. I don't know if it's this way in your house. But in our house, no, things, uh, no Christmas decorations are allowed to enter the, the space until Thanksgiving is over. So my, no, okay, come on. So, and it's a big deal in our house, right? And I'm like, what's the what's what's harm in a pillow that says ho, ho, ho or something? And no, no, not in our house. So my wife will say that when we go to people's houses, like, 
Did you notice that? There's no Christmas decorations out there. They're, they're like enjoying Thanksgiving. Like, is it the decorations? Is it, is it the value of the house? If you go to someone's house for Thanksgiving, if, if they have like a million dollar house, does it make for a better Thanksgiving than, I don't know, say a $250,000 house? Do, do you walk away going, yeah, that was really not, you know, that wasn't as good as the, you know, million dollar house last year? Is it the quartz countertops? Is it the size of the TV? Like, what makes Thanksgiving a great Thanksgiving? And you know as well as I do, it's, it's not what's on the table, it's, it's who's around the table that makes the Thanksgiving memorable and meaningful. This week we uh, are in Proverbs 15, 17, and you got to love this verse for, for this week. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. Or my translation, better is a salad with a couple croutons where love is than a Thanksgiving feast with a side of hate. So let me pray and we'll dive in. Father, I thank you for uh, this, this last week, a week to um, know you, to walk with you, to be led by you, uh, a week to um, interact with the people around us, a week to be on mission, a week to share the gospel and live it out. And I pray for us this morning as we are here opening your word, Father, that you will uh, give us great insight, uh, perspective, focus, uh, direction for the week ahead. It's, a, it's an awesome week. It's great to celebrate Thanksgiving and think about uh, things we're thankful for. But I pray as we go into it, Father, that you give us just a great focus on the opportunities that are in front of us. So teach us from your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said... Better is a dinner of herbs where love is and a fattened ox and hatred with it. I want to give you uh, four things this morning to think about. And this is, I'll just say this is the nature of teaching a topical sermon. Is there's probably at least 50 or 60 points I could make. And uh, so I just narrowed it down to four. Uh, you can thank me for that later. Here's the first one. Uh, love is better than a feast. So we're just going to go for the obvious point as we dive into the text today. Love is better than a feast. So, of course, food is good. And uh, a food, you know, a meal is always a great context for relationships. At least I found that to be so in my life. In fact, so much so that, for instance, in our grow group that gets together, we, we never get together um, without food. We, we never do. We, every time we get together, there's food. And usually, um, our grow group is usually just around a dinner table. Most of the time, that's where we are. Um, sitting around a table, there's something about having some food, slowing down, taking your time, it somehow aids to the conversations and the topics and the depths of conversations. I find my wife, uh, my wife's family, we have a lot of uh, family gatherings. There's a lot of us. Always food. All the time. Um, we've got Thanksgiving at our house this week. Again, it will be mostly around that table. Just relax, just eating some food. There's something about that, and it's interesting because it's kind of human nature. When you go through the Bible, there's a lot of feasts. There's a lot of tables. There's a lot of meals that are mentioned. Here in Proverbs, we see this feast, this, this menu. It says, better is a dinner of herbs where love is uh, than a fatted ox and hatred with it. So it, it gives us an interesting juxtaposition uh, here. Solomon says, basically, better is salad in love than a roast with hate. So those are the choices that he gives us here. Now, a fattened ox in ancient times was uh, the food item that was most preferred 
uh, by people. In fact, it still is uh, to this day. Most people like a good roast or a steak or a hamburger or a filet of meat. I know not all of you do, but uh, most of you do. And in ancient Israel, um, they didn't have the ability to store meat like we can today, so it wasn't a regular part of your menu, not to mention the fact that it was expensive. So really, it was only for special occasions or only for very rich people. So this fattened ox here at this meal, I would suggest it signifies something more than just food. If I could contextualize it a little bit, I would say it signifies something extravagant, something beyond the the ordinary. So it could be a a feast, it could be a buffet, but it could also maybe represent an expensive gift um, or an extravagant party. It could be, let's just say, a vacation somewhere or a possession or, or a home. Like, think, think about it this way. Uh, this is the il- illustration that came to my mind early on when I was studying this text. Imagine a husband or um, a father, and imagine this guy who um, works hard to make money, and he makes a lot of money, he's made a lot of money, um, but in order to make that money, he's really had to neglect his family and neglect his friends most of the time, most of the year. And then he gathers them all together, and he's going to present this big spread, this big feast, in order to make up for the other 51 weeks of the year that he has neglected them. So he tries to make up, and it couldn't, maybe it's not just a feast. Imagine um, it's, a, it's a big vacation. Right? Sometimes I'll hear people talk about this, like, I don't see dad all year long, and then, you know, we go to Hawaii, and that's supposed to make up for it. Or maybe it's an expensive birthday gift, or Christmas gift, or, or a big party. And, you know, what I find a lot of as a pastor when I talk with people about relationships in, in pastoral counseling is not so much abuse, although that happens sometimes verbal or physical, or, um, but mostly it's just neglect, Mostly it's just uh, my dad, my mom, somebody just doesn't have time for me. And there's a, there's a lot of ways that neglect can take place. You know, maybe it's a job. That's a big one. A lot of times people are so fixated on their job, so fixated on making money, they don't have time for other people that they should have. Maybe it's just Netflix, you know, sometimes I hear this, just comes home, tired, it's been a long day, I just want to, I just want to check out, right? Just turn on a good movie, well, you know, or maybe it's the internet. Maybe it's video games or a sport or a hobby. Maybe it's a substance or, you know, like to come home and do home projects or reading or exercise. And these things are not necessarily bad things. Some of them are good things. Getting exercise can be a good thing. Having a job can be a good thing. Having a creative outlet. But when these things become more important than our relationships, when these things begin to short-circuit healthy and loving relationships, that's when we have a problem, and that's when we start to end up with um, descriptions like we have here in Proverbs 15. Now Solomon, it's interesting, anticipates that an extravagant meal might be accompanied by hate. Like he's just, right, why would he think of this? Why would he juxtapose these things against each other? Well, I think part of it is because we can all agree life is complicated. It's not really that simple. Um, We can't just drop everything and just be with people all day long. 
as much as we might like to, right? We have, we have responsibilities as we get older. It starts with school. You got to go to school. So you can't, you can't just be home with mom all day. You can't just be with your siblings or your friends. Uh, you got to go to school. And so there's some time at school. And then you got to study. And there's, there's tests and, and assignments and stuff that, that you've got to do. Uh, as you get older, you start to get chores. I got to do chores. I got to break up the leaves. That's never done. Or I got you know, to get a job at some point and make some money. And then you own a home, and you got to keep the home up. So that takes some time, and we all need exercise, and you got to eat, and you got to sleep, and we're busy. And I mean, one of the things I hear from people right now more than anything is, I'm really busy. When I say, you know, how are you doing? How's life going? It almost always starts with, I'm busy. And then I hear about all the things that we're busy with. We're busy people. I get that. The Bible says that some material things are essential. Right? We need food and shelter and clothing, we need some form of transportation and medical care and loving people around us might mean that we've got to get a job to help provide for them and, and to provide for ourselves and our, our own needs. In 1 Timothy 5, 8, it, in fact, it says this, but if anyone does not provide for his, his relatives, he's talking about working and making money here and especially for members of his household, he's, he's denied the faith. It's, so it's kind of a big deal. And having a job can be a good thing. It can be a, a necessary thing. Making enough money to provide for yourself and people in your care is biblical, right? And we might even have to work sacrificial hours sometimes in some places. It's not just that we get to you know, work a 40-hour week and go home. And sometimes just to have food and shelter and clothing at a basic level requires more than that and sacrifice. But that's not the passage that we're looking at. The passage that we're looking at today is apparently about someone who has achieved financial success enough to be able to throw up a, you know, a big meal like this, and apparently they've done it at the expense of their relationships. And we know that because there's people around the table who are fuming. They're, they're angry. They're neglected. It's created broken relationships that no feast can fix. And this is where it gets probably frustrating for everybody because this person was working hard, making this money, bought this meal, thought that it should make up for, you know, all the neglect, but it doesn't, and you end up with a room full of very frustrated people. And it's part of kind of a bigger lie that I think we, are, we often hear in our, our culture today. Maybe you've heard this, that, that for parents and in relationships, that quality time is better than quantity time. Have you ever heard that? Quality, and sometimes I'll hear people say, well, I don't spend much time with my family, but when I do, right, it's really great. It's a great big feast or a great big vacation, and it's, it's, it's really awesome. It is better, some people say, to spend more time making money so that we can buy better things for our family and we can raise the standard of living and buy better stuff. Now, of course, you know, like I do, that that's a lie. The truth is that quality is never a substitute for quantity. In fact, I would say that loving relationships, meaningful relationships, are built on the foundation of time and interaction and shared experiences, not a lifestyle of neglect that you try to make up for every now and then with, with quality. You know, as a, as a kid, uh, thinking back, I don't really remember a lot of the uh, gifts I got for Christmas or my birthday, uh, I don't know that I remember. I mean, I, I got a banjo one time. I remember that. Uh, but other than that, I don't really remember the socks and the underwear and stuff that I got. Let me tell you what I do remember. I remember uh, the summer between the fourth and fifth grade. My parents were both bankers. They worked a lot. 
and they uh, told my sister and I, hey, we're going we're gonna to take the summer off, and we're going to take this pickup truck we have, and we're going to put a, a little shell on the back, not a camper, but just a, a low shell, and we're going to uh, p- make a little bench in the back and um, put some carpet in there and put a, a leather boot between the, ca- uh, the shell and the front of the truck. Do you guys remember those? And, uh, and then we're going to get on the road and we're going to drive to Alaska. So that's what we're going to do. And they you know, told me, you and your sister are going to sit in the back and you're just going to look through the boot all the way from L.A. to Alaska and back. And it's going to be awesome. And so uh, that's what we did. We drove all the way up there. Um, we didn't fly. Uh, no first class seating, um, no fancy hotels. I think we ate at Denny's most of the time. We went up there. We spent the summer up there hanging out with our relatives, and we came back. Um, but we were together. We were together all the time. Um, we were together when we wanted to be. We were together when we didn't want to be. We were together when we were tired and grumpy and grouchy. And I could tell you looking back, it was an amazing amazing experience as a kid to have all of that quantity time with my family that led to quality. Quantity of time. Now Proverbs is not saying that it's always one or the other. That it's always got to be a salad in love or prime rib in hate. It's just saying that relationships must be our first priority. They must be number one. Love is the attribute that God intends to characterize his people above all of this. In John 13, 35, notice a phrase that comes up three times in just a couple of verses. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you. So there's not a, a new suggestion or a new idea or a new principle. It's a new command. So this is a big deal. Sit up, listen, take notes. Here we go. A new command I give to you that you, and here we go, three words, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. There it is again. And by all this, and by this, people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Loving one another. How did Jesus love? Well, consider his relationship with the disciples. What was that like? Well, he sought them out relationally. He made room in his life for them. Literally, he, they traveled with him. They ate with him. Um, They had uh, endless conversations. Uh, He put up with them. He was patient with them. He taught them. He ministered to them. He protected them. He died for them. He died for them. He loved them. He gave himself to them, both quantity and quality. And this love is to characterize all of our relationships with one another. It's to characterize our marriages that our marriages would be characterized by our love for our spouse. That our relationship in our families, with our kids, with our parents, would be characterized by love. To our extended family, our friendships, our, within our church, in our, in our grow groups. That it would be about love. Here's the second thing I want to mention this morning. And that is that sometimes less is better than more. All right? Now, Worldly wisdom always tells us this, that more wealth equals more happiness. Now, if you don't think that's true, then you're not paying attention. There's study after study after study that I've seen that says that the more money you make, the happier you are, right? The more fulfilled you are and the better your relationships are going to be. So let me just give you one example. This is uh, uh, some research that 
I came across recently. This is based on a whole bunch of studies that have been put together. And let me just read for you what the title says. Money does buy happiness after all. Right. That's the title of the research. And then when you break it down, here's what they did. So they, they did this survey of hundreds of thousands of people, and they broke it all down into kind of two, um, two categories. There's what they call evaluative well-being, which is how uh, somebody feels when they reflect back on their life. And then there's what they call experience well-being. That is how people reported feeling in the moment um, based on how much money they had. And here's what, you, here's what they found. Basically, if you made less than $80,000 a year, you were in the negative, quote, and, you know, in terms of like you're not very happy. And then you finally start to get happy once you break about $80,000. So if you're here this morning and you're grumpy and you make $79,000, now you know why, all right? So this is just, so here's what they do though. So they start off at, fi- at $15,000, you're just a really unhappy person. And it's, it's interesting, by the way, that on both sides, I won't get into this, but it's interesting that they say, looking back, you feel uh, if you were unhappy, you were even more unhappy. And if you were happy, you're even more happy. But in terms of just experience, you can see as you make more money, you're, you're less less happy, I guess is what we'd say, and you get to the $75,000, $80,000 mark, and suddenly you're breaking even, and now you're, you're kind of getting somewhere, and you can see $85,000, $95,000. By the way, it looks like, in terms of uh, evaluative, that you actually, you're less happy um, between eighty five and 95000 so just a little advice. If you're making eighty five and your boss offers you $95,000, do not take it, just because like, you're not going to be as happy. But anyways, you go down, and, and it's kind of interesting. You get all the way down here. Um, a big break here is apparently, in terms of how you experience life on a daily basis, um, from 400000 to 625000 you actually, on a daily basis, feel less happy. So let that be a lesson to you there as well. If you're making four hundred and your boss offers you six twenty five, say, no, thank you. Um, I'm happy enough as it is. But here's what I want to uh, point out here. At the end of all this, they break it down and they give some speculation. Here's why we think, they say, there is a connection between um, income and happiness. There's a couple of them. The first is because increased uh, wealth means increased comfort. Uh, as someone earns more, they said, they have the ability to purchase things that reduce suffering and increase comfort. So I get that. Uh, the second thing is uh, there's more control. Having a sense of control, get this accounted for 74% of the association between income and well-being. Now, now here's where we could kind of get into it a little bit, right? The idea that as you make more money, you have more control over life is like um, spoken from somebody who hasn't really lived that much. Like how much of life do we actually control? Not much. Whether we have money or not. Right? Because really the most important things in life cannot be bought, cannot be controlled with money. But, but that being said, I want to I read for you the very last thing that they mention at the end of this very long study. It's in uh, smaller type, one paragraph all the way at the end. Um, it says this, not all respondents that we surveyed cared about money. For those who valued money most, their income had a significant impact on their perceived well-being. Last sentence of the whole study, okay? Talk about burying the lead. However, those who didn't prioritize money were happier regardless of their income. Like, that should have been at the beginning of the study, right? Those who didn't prioritize money were happier regardless of their income. 
See, the truth is that money doesn't bring happiness. And in fact, God's wisdom will say sometimes less is more. In 1 Timothy 6, 6, I'm going to read you a few verses here. These are easy to read and easy to nod the head. But uh, at the end, they're a little bit hard, aren't they, to, to work into our life. But godliness with contentment is great gain, Paul says. Uh, For we brought nothing into the world... And we cannot take anything out of the world. But, notice this, but if we have food and clothing, with these, uh, with these we will be content. I've been having a lot of conversations with people this week, and everyone kind of goes, oh, <laughs> right at that last, like, could we really be content with food and clothing if we knew Christ? Let me ask you this. Let's try a thought exercise for a minute, okay? Uh, imagine that you uh, are offered a job and this job is uh, 40 hours a week. And you get off each day, Monday through Friday, at 5 o'clock. You don't answer email in the evening. No extra work, no responsibilities. And you don't have to work on the weekends. So it allows you to come home and invest your evenings in your family, in your relationships. But you will live a basic life. You won't have extras. You won't be taking your family to Disney World. There'll be no big extravagant gifts or a big house, or designer clothes, right? But you'll have a lot of time for your relationships. Or let's say they offer you a second job. Let's say you work 50 hours a week. So you work five days, and you'll work a little bit extra each day, okay? And you'll be able to buy nicer clothes, um, you know, take your family out to restaurants, buy bigger gifts. You can take that vacation in Hawaii, and your overall standard of, standard of living will be better. But at the end of each day, You'll have less time because you've got to work later and you'll have less energy because you worked so long. You'll have less to invest in your relationships. Which would you take? Now, right, obviously it's complicated and it depends on a lot of things, but my point is this, sometimes less is more. Again, in Proverbs 15, 17, better is a dinner of herbs. So dinner of herbs is a lifestyle characterized obviously by simplicity. David Balzi uh, on this verse says this, the fortunate truth of the matter is that you don't have to be rich to have love. In fact, money can't buy love and money often creates distractions which diminish it. And I think that's a big part of what we're talking about in this passage. A little bit later in Proverbs 17.1, it says this, better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. So again, the, the dry morsel there is like indicative of prisoner food uh, or a very poor household. And yet it says here that it's actually better if it comes with quiet. Now the quiet that he's talking about there is not decibel levels. It's, uh, the word actually shalva in the Hebrew means ease, tranquility. It means rest or, or to be at peace. It means better to be in a house where there's tranquility of relationships, where there is peace. Then to have a lot of money and, and fancy things, but strife and, and unhealthy relationships. Better is peace. It made me think of Romans 5.1 uh, on a much broader uh, level. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What it tells us is this, that it's Christ. That it's a relationship with God through Christ that brings peace into our lives. It's not money, it's not accomplishments, it's not things, it's a relationship, it's a rightness with God. When we're no longer at war with God, 
when we're no longer fighting with God, but when we surrender to God, when we, when we admit that we're sinners, when we repent of our sin, when we believe in Christ, we receive a peace with God. It is a transcendent peace that goes, the scripture says, beyond our circumstances in our life. And it's a peace that becomes a part of us. And what happens is when we have peace with God, we are at peace. And when we are at peace, it allows us to do something we otherwise can't do. To have peace horizontally with the people in our world that allows us to suddenly be able to go there. But without that, we cannot go there. And so scripture again and again encourages us to ask the question, have we gone there? Have we gone to that place? I would ask you that. Do you have peace with God? Have you accepted the, the gift of Christ, the grace that God has for us? Because that's the starting point. And until we get to that point, we're at war with God and we'll be at war with people. How do we do that? It's very simple. We just place our trust, our, our faith in Christ. We confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead and we shall be saved. And this is the gospel right here. And so even as we're talking about our relationships, right, we have to remember this is all rooted in the gospel. Sometimes less is more. Here's the third thing. Faith is better than what if. So I kept coming back to this this week as I was thinking about this passage. And like I said, I had about 15 things we could have talked about. And this ended up making the list because it just came up so much. So when I talk about what ifs, what I mean is, what if the car breaks down? What if the roof leaks? What if I get sick? What if I lose my job? What if the economy tanks, you know? What if interest rates go up? That won't happen. What if inflation happens or we hit a recession? Here's why I say this, because the fear of the what-ifs can get you so focused on, on trying to make more money to prepare for all the what-ifs, uh, to deal with the what-ifs, that it becomes more important to you than your relationships and, and living in the kingdom of God. It becomes more important. It's this, it's this fearful thing actually that Jesus is talking about. I think he's kind of getting to the heart of that in Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to read this for you. I'm going to read it slowly so it can just kind of sink in a little bit. But listen to what Jesus says as we think about this, the fear of the what is. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food? Isn't the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. Just look at how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Or how will we fix the roof? How will we afford braces, right? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first. Seek first. Primarily seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added to you. 
Now, this is in a much broader context of Scripture. So Jesus isn't saying, hey, listen, don't get a job. Just sleep in and sponge off your friends and be irresponsible and, you know, don't worry, God will provide. When we look at it in the context of wider Scripture, what we, what we read is this. Yeah, you've got to get a job. Yeah, you've got to make a living. But in all of that, don't forget God's sovereign care for you. Never forget God's sovereign care. Yeah, a word we often use is providence. We, he's saying, remember the providence of God, that God is sovereign, that God is in charge, that God is calling the shots, and that God is good. God is sovereign, God is in charge, but God is good, and he loves you, and he cares about you, and he's involved in your life, and he knows what you need, he knows. So when you put these two things together, the sovereignty of God and the care of God for you, we get this thing called the providence of God. Jesus says, don't forget the providence of God, because if you forget the providence of God, if you forget it, you, it'll lead to stress and anxiety about all the what-ifs, because there's a lot of what-ifs, Right? There's a lot of what-ifs in the world that we all deal with. And if you forget about the providence of God, you'll begin to worry about the what-ifs. And it may drive you to look for security somewhere other than God. And oftentimes, where do we look for it? In wealth. We've got to make more money. We've got to work more. And then you'll never have enough for all the what-ifs. Because the more money you make, the more what-ifs there are. And it'll take over your time, and it'll take over your life, and it will become an obstacle to you pursuing the kingdom of God first. And what is a primary kingdom characteristic? We already read it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. They go together. A prime characteristic of living in the kingdom of God is to love God and to love people. And so sometimes... Sometimes less is more, and we cannot live in fear of the what-ifs. And, and here at Gateway, and one of the fun things about my job is to get to hear stories from some of you at times. Sometimes people come and say, you know, I got this, uh, I got this job offer, and um, uh, I turned it down. I, it would have been great money, but it would have taken so much time away from my family. Or some of you have said, you know what, I'm at work, I had this job, and I, I took a lesser job. I, I, I took a step down. I'm making less money, but I'm also working less, and so I'm with my family more. And some people have just stepped out of uh, work altogether and said, we're just going to be a one-income household. It's going to be tough, but we're going to invest in our kids. And they could, you know, many of you could line up here and just share about the decision you made and why if you had to do it all over again, you would. Right? But don't live in fear of the what-ifs. And remember, sometimes less is more. And the last thing is this. Right? Pursuing love is better than quiet quitting. So I want to I talk for a minute about quiet quitting, and we had some really interesting conversations after the last service from people about quiet quitting, and I got all sorts of reasons why uh, they have quite quit their job. So I'm not, I'm not trying to give you a hard time about this. I want to make a spiritual point, but start with a, you know, kind of a regular everyday kind of thing. I don't, so I don't know if you're familiar with quiet quitting or, or what that is. Um, quiet quitting is where you don't resign from your job. It's where you don't quit your job, you just quietly quit your job. What you decide is yet you're no longer going to go above and beyond what's being asked of you or what you're being paid for. You're not going to work extra hours. You're not going to answer email in the evening or answer phone calls or work on the weekend. You're just going to do what is required. You're only going to do what is contractually required and you're not going to do any more. So let me just say this. So a lot of people after the last service, like, why were you giving me a hard time um, about quiet quitting? So let me just say this, that your job, <laughs> you need to seek the Lord in your job and how much you work and whether you answer emails in the evening or not. 
That's up to you, all right? But here's what I want to talk about. What about when it comes to people? See, it's one thing to quiet quit at work. I get that. And sometimes that you've got to do that. You've got to have boundaries, right? But what about with people? What about quiet quitting people? You say, do people quiet quit other people relationally? Oh, yeah. They do it all the time. Where people say, you know what? I'm not giving any more to this relationship than I get. I'm putting boundaries around this thing. I'm not answering your email in the evening or, you know, whatever it is. But think about this, all right? Consider Jesus. What was his relationship like with his disciples? Right? His, his love for them was sacrificial. His love for them was costly. His love for them lacked reasonable boundaries, didn't it? Like they were with him all of the time. And in fact, Jesus went all the way to the cross. You don't see Jesus hanging on the cross and people are walking by and hurling abuse at him and laughing and, you know, all that. And Jesus is like, you know what? I didn't sign up for this. I'm not getting paid enough for this, right? They're, they're, this is not a healthy boundary, right? Dying on a cross for, for you people. But it's what he did. In 1 John 4, 10, it tells us, this, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sin. He sent his son to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. It was the great exchange. He took our place on the cross. He died for us. That was a relationship. That was a love without boundaries. Never quitting on us. Never giving up on us. Always giving everything that he could, all the way to giving his very life for us. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Jesus set the standard for our relationships. Love one another as he has loved us. Love is sacrificial. Love crosses reasonable boundaries. Love serves even when it isn't served in return. Love is humble. It puts other people first. And this is how we are to love one another as Christ has loved us. A couple months ago, uh, a couple of us were sitting up in the conference room and we were talking about uh, this series, and we got on to um, this conversation about quiet quitting, and it was really, I think it was Gary and Lee and I, and we were talking about this, and it was really fascinating to think about quiet quitting in relationships, and the one thing we thought about that was really intriguing to me was Jonah. Like, when I think about people in Scripture who quiet quit <laughs> when it came to people, man, Jonah was definitely a person at the top of the list. So you remember the story of Jonah? Here's Jonah. He's a prophet of God, of, of Israel. He's a prophet of God. What does a prophet do? They receive messages from God and they deliver it to the people. They're, they're a spokesman for God. And so God gives this message to Jonah to take to the people of Nineveh. Now the people of Nineveh were, they were the enemies of the Israelites and, and uh, Jonah doesn't want to do it. He does not want to go. Why doesn't he want to go? Think about it. Because he says at the end of the story, he knows if he goes to these this terrible, awful, violent, sinful people and tell them about the warning of God, unbelievably, he suspects they will listen and they will repent and God will have mercy and he doesn't want any of that. He doesn't want mercy for his enemies. He wants judgment. 
And so he gets on a boat going in the opposite direction of Nineveh because he's going to have none of it. He has quit on those people, right? So he gets on this boat, and he's going in the other direction, and the Lord causes a storm to come up. And uh, the people on the boat, the sailors are freaking out because the, the boat's going to fall apart, and Jonah's sleeping, and they figure out that Jonah's the reason all this has happened. So they get Jonah, and they're like, tell us who you are, and tell us what you've done. And so he says, you know, I'm, the, I, I'm a prophet, and I serve the God of the Hebrews, the God of the, the sea and the land and the sky. And they're like, tell us, tell us more, right? They want to they wanna hear this from Jonah. They're just wait. It's like an altar call waiting to happen. They are ready to respond. Just tell us what to do. In Jonah chapter 1 verse 11, it says, And then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? And, and for the sea grew more tempestuous. And he said to them, believe in the Lord. You place your faith in the Lord. You know, get, get baptized and, and follow Jesus Christ. So he doesn't say any of that stuff. What does it say? Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great, great tempest has come upon you. God's handed him this great opportunity to show love and to show care. And he'll have none of it. He just quiet quits on them. He has a vital message to offer them about their creator, about, about God and how to be right with him. And they're primed to hear it and have none of it. He's just done. I'm done with the Ninevites. I'm, I'm done with you guys. Just throw me over, you know, throw me over the edge because I'm done. Folks, if you're a Christian, you cannot quiet quit. You cannot quite quit your relationships. You cannot invest the bare minimum on the people that God has placed in your life and then try to make it better with a fattened ox every, every now and then. This is true in our marriage. You can't just put in the bare minimum and then say, hey, let's go to Hawaii, honey, and it's all going to be great. That's not how you build a good relationship. We can't do it as parents. We can't do it in our friendships, at work, at church and our grow groups. Folks, let me just tell you something that I know you already know, but I just want to remind you as we head into this holiday season, and maybe some of you are getting together with family this week. People do not need expensive gifts from you. They just need you. They just need time with you, conversations with you, a simple meal with you. They don't need fancy vacations and homes and they just need you. For the past two years, I've seen a lot of kind of quiet quitting going on where people are like, it, it usually sounds like this, I'm just done with difficult people. I don't have time for difficult people anymore. I don't know, you know, life's too short. I don't have time for people who vote that way or, or, or mask or don't mask that way or vaccine or don't vaccine that way. Or what. People who have quiet quit on their marriages, their kids, their coworkers, they didn't leave they're just putting in the bare minimum anymore. No sacrifice, no serving, no, no investing. But there's an opportunity for us. Uh, if one infographic's good, two are even better. So let me, uh, let me just do this and then we'll close. So this is another study I came across this week. This is super interesting. So this traces how the average American, how, much, how they spend their time uh, through their life in terms of hours per day. So it starts at around age 10 and goes up to age 90. And you can see here, so 
let's kind of follow this along a little bit. Uh, it says when we're 10 years old, we spend more time with family than anyone. This isn't sleeping hours, it's just waking hours, uh, about four or five hours a day. And then you could see as we get down to our 30s, this is a family we're born into, less and less time because we got other things going on. We have friends um, that we spend more time with uh, up to our 20s, and then that kind of goes downhill because we get things like a, a spouse, right, that kind of goes up, and that stays pretty high as we go through life. Um, we have children um, that take more and more of our time. They say most of the time is in the 30s, between 30 to 40s, where uh, we spend most of uh, the time with our kids, and then it goes down from there. Um, and then uh, co-workers, but then this is the one that I was looking at, alone. How much time and hours a day we spend alone? And it starts around three, and then it goes up, and here's the pattern. As we get older, we spend more and more time alone until, right, we get down to our 80s and our 90s, and we're spending like eight hours a day alone. That's not sleeping, that's just spending time alone. And there's a lot of reasons, obviously, for that. But my point is this. As we get older, being alone is natural. It's natural. I get it. But what if we decided to do something unnatural? What if we decided that we're going to be different? What if we decided that we're going to push this, this thing down? When we get into our 50s or 60s or 70s, what if we decided that we're going to push some alone time down? And let's face it, we like some alone time, and I'm not saying give up all your alone time, but what if we gave up some of it and we invested it, we pushed it down we pushed it down into coworkers. We pushed it down into friends. We pushed it down into family. Say, well, they don't call me. Well, they don't come over to me. Well, so what? What if we invested it in them? What if we became a little aggressive? What if we were that person, you know? And we began to invest our time like, oh, he's always calling. He's always coming over. So what? What if we began to invest that thing that we have some time and we pushed it down and we began to be, we didn't do something natural. We did something unnatural. We did something supernatural. So Thanksgiving is this Thursday, and um, maybe some of you are going to have some people around the table at your house. We're going to have people at our house. Just remember this. The most important thing isn't what's on the table on Thursday. It's what's around the table. And people deserve the focus, not the turkey, not the decorations. If you are with anyone on that day, you have the opportunity to invest in loving relationships with them. And every day between now and then and every day beyond that, every day, to go above and beyond and invest in your home and your marriage with your kids. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. The truth is, as we get older, we become more aware of this, don't we? That in the end, it's the Lord Jesus Christ and it's people that matter. And you can make that investment. You can make that choice today. Let me pray for us. Father, I, I thank you for your word and I thank you for just the clear uh, message that we get in scripture from beginning to end that you are our creator, our father, our God and you deserve the best of us, the most of us. You deserve all of us. Every ounce of our being belongs to you. We are to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But Father, you've also told us that, that kind of the big way that we do that is by loving other people. One of the ways that we show that we love you is by loving the people that you have placed around us, sharing your love with them in a way that doesn't have boundaries, that isn't 
reasonable, in a way that reflects the love that you showed us through your son who went above and went beyond and did the unreasonable so that we could know you, so that our sin could be forgiven and we could become children of God. Father, I pray for us this week. We are busy people. We have a lot of stuff going on as we go into this week. But we also have a great opportunity, a great opportunity to realign ourselves and focus on what's most important. Even before we leave this building today, give our focus and our love and our attention to people. And to remember, it's not what's on that table on Thursday. It's who's around that table. It's the relationships we invest in. We know we can't do this in our own power. So we pray that your spirit would work through us this week so that we can minister and bless those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people say, amen.